You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. For the last uh, little while, heard the news that Rob McClellan, who was our executive director, uh, has resigned in order to move into a different area of ministry. And uh, today uh, we have the blessing of having Dan Hamill come and share with us. He is the interim executive director for our conference, and he's been here to talk with uh, Bob Fast and Jim Leverett. They were here yesterday talking about next steps for our conference. So please be keeping them as prayer as they need wisdom as far as how God is guiding us as as a whole conference. Again, not just our church, but over 400 churches that we're on a journey together with the Lord. And so, Dan, we're very happy that you're here this morning with us, and we pray for your God's blessing as you share with us. Thank you. Well, it is my privilege to be with you this morning, and I do bring uh, greetings from 430 other uh, North American Baptist Conference churches. It's amazing to think on any given Sunday morning, as I'm in Folsom, California, worshiping with the congregation that I call home, that at the same time in North America, 430 other churches are praising and worshiping God as part of the same family. So it's, it's a privilege to be part of a family. It's uh, my privilege to be in Winnipeg and in, to be at White Ridge this morning. Now, some of you have been concerned about me. I am warm enough, um, but have been concerned just about my coming into the cold. It's okay. I grew up in the snow belt of Michigan, and then I uh, pastored in Bismarck, North Dakota for five years. So I am very much used to this cold. Um, but if you'd like me like to know it, I, I did leave Sacramento, California on Friday morning. And if it feel, makes you feel better, just know that it was 30 below and a blizzard when I left, I'll tell you that. It would be a lie, but I'll tell you that. But uh, it is good to be here this morning. If you would take uh, your copy of the Word of God this morning, turn to Revelations chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the Word of God this morning. Revelations chapter 2. I'm going to read the first five verses for us. This is God's Word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I Know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start this morning with a story. It's not a biblical story. It's not a true story. But I personally think it's a funny story, so if you'd humor me and laugh at the end of it and make me feel better about being uh, thousands of miles away from my, uh, my wife and kids this morning. So this is the story. A mother had two naughty boys. They were incorrigible little boys, nasty, naughty, not nice little boys. And the mother wanted nothing more than for these boys to be good boys, kind boys, loving boys. Now, I realize this is hard for you to imagine because in Winnipeg, you don't have these kind of boys. But in California, we have naughty boys. And so the mother had two naughty boys. 
And so she said, I'm going to take them to my pastor, and at my pastor, I'm going to ask him to say something to my boys that would make them good, wholesome, nice boys. So she took them to her pastor. She said, Pastor, please say something to my boys. And the pastor thought to himself, what can I say? What great theological truth can I give to these boys that would help them know they should be good and kind and nice boys? Then he thought to himself, I've got it. He left the eight-year-old out with his assistant in the outer office. He took the six-year-old into his inner office. He put him on a chair and he knelt down and he looked the six-year-old in the eyes and he said this very sternly, young man, do you know where God is. You see, the pastor was trying to convey to this little boy that, that God, in essence, was everywhere. His presence was in all places and that God always saw him. He saw him when he was naughty and, and maybe this would help. The little boy didn't say anything. The pastor thought, well, I'm going to do it again, a little louder, a little more stern for effect. And he, he looked the boy in the eyes and said again, young man, do you know where God is? The little boy's lips started to quiver. Tears filled up with his, in his eyes. The pastor thought, I'm getting through. One more time, even more loudly, more sternly for effect. Young man, do you know where God is? The boy burst out of the seat, jumped out through the door, grabbed his brother, brother by the sleeve, ran down the hall. The first closet they found, he, he jumped in the closet, slammed the door, sat down on the ground, and started to weep. His brother said, Bro, what's the matter? What did they do to you? He said this. He said, someone stole God, and they think that we did it. <laughs> In the book of Revelations, we see John's epiphany. God gives John the, these visions of what's happening in eternal spheres, and God is speaking to the church of Ephesus. And as God speaks to the church of Ephesus, this is what he says. First, he says, I know the good things that you're doing. I see you and there's positive, good things coming out of your life. You're working hard for your faith. You're persevering in the midst of hard times. You're discerning doctrinally what is going around you. And those are all really good things. And God says, I want to applaud you for those things, Church of Ephesus. But then he says this, and there's a major turn. He says, yet, I have this against you. You have forsaken or lost or abandoned your first love. You see, the Church of Ephesus, where you were before with, with a loving, growing, adoring relationship with God, you've lost that. The word for forsaken there is actually the word in New Testament, in the New Testament, that's used for the word divorce. So he's saying, the church of Ephesus, basically what you've done is you've divorced me. You've pushed me away from your life. You've lost your first love. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all go through those types of seasons, don't we? Times where we don't quite feel as close to God as we used to. Times where our love for God is a little colder, a little clammier than in other times. 
Sometimes it's because of habits that we've allowed to come into our lives. Sometimes it's because choices. Sometimes it's just because of feelings. But there are times where God feels at a distance, far away. And my question to all of us this morning is in those times when we feel like we've lost our first love, when we've abandoned or someone has stolen God from us and we're not as close as we wish we were, how do we regain that first love? How do we come back? How do we regain our first love? You know, to get the answer to that question, I think there's one pivotal step, one significant first step. It's a great theological truth I think we need to understand And that's what I actually want to talk to you about this morning. To get there, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now, I'm actually not going to read this text. I'm not going to spend time walking verse to verse. But I am going to retell the stories for you, the stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn there and sort of, uh, you know, look through as I go through the text and tell the stories, that's great. But I want us to be reminded, how do we regain our first love? And these are the stories that Jesus told. To get into the stories, though, the scripture says that Jesus was sitting with a group of people. And they were the um, sort of the outcasts of those days. They were people that were not exactly considered good by the, uh, the religious leaders of the day. In fact, what the scripture calls them is sinners. So it says Jesus was sitting and hanging out with the sinners. And the religious leaders came along and and they had their uh, collars a little bit too tight that morning. And so they turned to Jesus and said, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with these sinners? And Jesus, in response, tells them three stories. These are the three stories. One, a shepherd had a hundred sheep. And every night that shepherd would count his sheep to make sure he still had 100 sheep. You can see him. 97, 98, 99, 100. And he'd grab the clipboard, he'd check off 100, he'd sign his name, he'd sign it, uh, hand it over to the night crew, and everything was good. Every day he did this, 97, 98, 99, 100. Everything's good. Until one day he was counting his sheep. 97, 98, 99, 99, 99, one's missing. Now, I'm not much of a sheep guy. I need to tell you that. I I don't really understand sheep. I don't get sheep. I don't have any adoration of sheep. So I tell you what, for me, 99 out of 100 sounds pretty good. It's close enough. In fact, okay, a little true story. In high school, if I would have brought home a math test, to my home, and the teacher on top of that math test would have written 99 out of 100, right? 99 out of 100. I brought that math test home to my mother. I said, Mom, here's my math test from from today. After the paramedics had performed CPR on her and she actually got up on her feet again because she would have been falling down, she would have done a little happy dance around our kitchen because I had gotten 99 out of 100. It would have been a good day at our house, but not for the shepherd. When he got to 99 and realized that one was missing, he said, I've got to find this lost sheep. So it says that he put the sheep in a pen and he went out and he looked 
for this one lost sheep. Now, Jesus doesn't really tell us why that one sheep was lost, how it got in that predicament. I mean, I personally think the sheep, it just took its eyes off the shepherd. And it just sort of put its, its head down. And, and with its eyes off of the shepherd, it just sort of wandered. And before it knew it, it was a great distance from a shepherd. And it just got lost. I, I think you could think that maybe the sheep was just out looking for better grass. A little clump of grass here, a little clump, clump of grass there. Just looking for better grass. And by the way, we're not in British Columbia, so better grass is not code word for anything. All right, so, you know, if it would have been that kind of better grass, we would have known why the sheep would have been lost, right? But this is Winnipeg, so we don't have to go there. But the sheep is lost, far away, in danger. And it says the shepherd spends time and energy and resources and goes out to look for the lost sheep. And he finds it. And he puts the sheep on his back and he carries it all the way back to the pen. And there he puts the sheep in the pen, and then he does this very odd, strange, even bizarre thing. He throws a party. I mean, he invites all of his friends and his relatives and his neighbors and his coworkers, and they come to that farmhouse, and they have this celebration, this huge party. It was a, I found my missing lamb party. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been to an I found my missing lamb party. I don't know what gifts you bring, personally, to a I found my missing lamb party. I, I, don't, I don't know if Hallmark has a little section called, for, called an I found my missing lamb. I mean, what would that card look like? I'm so glad you found your lamb Hope you're happy as a clam. I, I don't know. I don't know what that card looks like. I don't know what you serve at an I found my missing lamb party. I know what you don't serve at a, you know, lamb kebabs are not on the menu, okay? But there was a party, a huge celebration for the missing lamb that was lost but is now found. Story one. Story two goes something like this. Jesus said a woman had 10 coins, and one of them went missing. Now, we don't, Bible scholars don't know exactly what those coins were. Some say they were part of, the, her, of her wedding, her marriage ceremony, some kind of dowry, maybe something she wore around her neck. Um, but she had 10 of them, and one got lost. It slipped away. It simply found itself away from her. And we don't know why and don't know how, but the coin was lost. Now, in first century Palestine, the houses would have been darker, a little more enclosed. So it says, the woman took a lamp. And she lit that lamp using her resources. And she started to sweep. You can visualize her, can't you? She's sweeping every corner of her house. She's looking under beds and chairs and corners. She's pushing around the dirt and dust, trying to find that one lost coin. See, for this woman, it would have been similar to if someone stood up right now and said, I've lost my wedding ring. I lost my... We'd all sort of get down on our knees, wouldn't we, and help that person find their wedding ring because it's got sentimental value to that person. So she's looking around, trying to find that one lost coin, and suddenly she sees a glimmer, a glint of sun, 
beaming off something metal. And she reaches down and she finds the coin. And then she does something quite odd, strange, even bizarre. She throws a party. She invites all of her friends and her relatives and her coworkers and her neighbors over. In the middle of her house there, they throw this celebration. And there's song and food and there's laughter and there's dance because she has found this coin. Once again, I've never been to that party. I don't know what you bring. I don't know what you serve. Help me afterwards. But, you know, the only thing I can think is, you know, you serve silver dollar pancakes. But, but anyway, I don't know. But she threw a celebration because her coin that was lost had been found. Story two. Story three. Jesus said that a man had two sons. And that one of those sons came to him and said, Father, I want my inheritance and I'm leaving you. I don't like it here anymore. I'm taking my, what's mine and I'm going away. Now, I'm going to stop here and I want to go back and sort of try to help you see the momentum of these stories. In the story of the sheep, there was one lost sheep out of a hundred. In story number two, the lost coin, there was one lost coin out of ten. Now there's one lost son out of two. Percentages become a little higher. It's more meaningful. In the story of sheep, I think the sheep was basically a commodity. You could sell it. You could get wool from it. But it was basically the sheep was just a, a commodity. The coin, I think, was something sentimental, something emotionally important. But with the son story, now we get personal. Now it gets relational. And Jesus is building the momentum on the stories. He says that the father had two sons and one took off. He took the money that the father had and he said he went into a distant country and there he spent it. He wasted it. In fact, later on from the older brother, we learned that he had wasted it on prostitutes. He had wasted it on things that would have broken his father's heart. The economy changes. His life changes. He has no money, no friends, no resources. This young son finds himself working in pig slop. And there the scriptures, there's this great phrase, the scripture says that the young man came to his senses. And he said, even my father's servants don't live as poorly as this. I want to go back home. And he makes the turn and he starts to walk home. And as he's walking home, he's re rehearsing the speech. And the speech basically says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I simply want to be a servant. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Let me be your servant. Step by step, kilometer after kilometer, he's walking home. I no longer am worthy to be your son. Let me be your servant. See, I, I don't think this was simply a persuasive speech. I don't think he was trying to fool his father. This isn't something made up. I think this was authentic and real. His sense of shame, his sense of remorse. Now, the scripture says, Jesus says that when he got a long way off, his father saw him. Here's what should have happened. In first century 
Middle Eastern cultures, family was significant. So significant, it bonded everything in culture together, family. It was all about family. And so what should have happened is this. The father in seeing his son would have brought the elders together. So the elders of the community would have come together. The father would have taken a pot and lifted the pot over his head and said, my son has forsaken me. My son has abandoned me. He has left me. And then he would have, it would have uh, thrown the pot to the ground. It would have shattered in a million pieces. And the father would have said, as the same way that this pot cannot be gathered together again, so our relationship will never be gathered together again. That's what the father should have done. That was culturally appropriate. But Jesus said that when the father saw him from a long way, the father ran to him and he embraced him and he hugged him and he kissed him. And then he did an odd, strange, bizarre thing. He threw a party. And he celebrated the son who was lost, but now who's found. So why does Jesus tell these three stories? Why does Jesus take time to pause and focus on three lost things? And what does that have to do with the church at Ephesus that had lost or forsaken their first love? I'm going to answer that question, but I want to do it in just a second. I want to tell you another story first. It's a personal story. It's a story about my gray sweatshirt. At home, I have a gray sweatshirt. It is a, a sweatshirt I've had for about 10 years. It's, it's well-worn, but it's one of those sweatshirts that was a gift. And over the years, it sort of has just come to fit like a glove. It's just wonderful, these wonderful sweatshirts you just put on and you sort of melt in it. I think we probably all have something we wear like that. This fits nice. We just love to get into this. So this was my gray sweatshirt, and I always wear it when I'm working on my car. So about two and a half, three weeks ago, I went out to work on my car, and I went to my closet to grab my gray sweatshirt. Wonderful gray sweatshirt. I just really like this gray sweatshirt, and I couldn't find it. It just wasn't there. So like every good father, I did what good fathers do. I, I yelled, you know, to my household, has anyone seen my gray sweatshirt? And I heard nothing. So at that point, as fathers know, you divide and conquer. So I went to my daughter. I said, Kelsey, my, daughter, my uh, golden locks of, of a girl, I said, have you seen daddy's sweatshirt? Now, my sweatshirt has, it, it sort of has some markings on it. It's got frayed sleeves, it's got a spot on the arm, and it's got a little hole in the sh shoulder. So Kelsey looked at me and said, well, Dad, do you mean, do you mean the, uh, the sweatshirt that has frayed sleeves, uh, spot on the arm, hole in the shoulder? I said, that's it. Have you seen it? She goes, no, haven't seen it. I went to my son. I said, Andrew, my young boy who's becoming a man, have you seen Daddy's sweatshirt? And he said, well, you mean the one with the frayed sleeves, the spot here, the uh, rip in the shoulder? I said, that's it. He goes, not a clue. Haven't seen it, Dad. I went to my wife. I said, Rhonda, the woman I've been married for 27 years, love of my life, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We, we both have theology degrees. We can talk each other, that way to each other. H have you seen my gray sweatshirt? And she said, yeah, the one with the, the, the frayed, the, the, the... I said, yeah, that's it. She said, I haven't seen it. So you know what I did? 
I went on it and put my green sweatshirt on and went out and fixed my car. I like, I like my gray sweatshirt. It's a great sweatshirt. It feels good. I really like it, but I wasn't going to spend any time or resources or effort finding my gray sweater. Get this, because I liked it, but I never treasured it. I never treasured it. Jesus tells three stories to tell us this. God treasures lost people. God treasures lost people. God doesn't like lost people. God doesn't put up with lost people. God doesn't pity lost people. God treasures. He loves, he adores, he embraces, he runs to, he cares for, he celebrates, he throws parties for lost people who come home. God treasures lost people. So let me talk to a couple types of people perhaps here this morning at White Ridge. You may say to me, Dan, there was a time in my life that I felt closer to God. There was a time in my life that that my relationship with Jesus was good. It was solid. It it was one of hope. And and I would wake up in the morning and, and, and I would feel close to God. And at the end of the night, we would be close. And I really felt like there was little distance between us. But something's happened over the years, or the months, or even over the last weeks, where God feels distant from me. Maybe it's because of some choices that you've made. Maybe it's because of some habits you've allowed in your life. Maybe it's because of a lot of things, but somehow God feels stolen, or lost, or distance, or away. And you're just feeling that gap. I want to let you know that God treasures you. God treasures you so much that he wants nothing more than for you to turn around and to start to walk back. And when you do that, he will run to you. He will embrace you. He will love you. He will care for you. He will form you and reform you and transform you. He will give you hope and joy and peace because he loves you. He just wants you to come home. If there's a distance at all with you and God today, God simply wants you to come home. You know, when the service ends, the best thing you could do, the very best thing for you to do is make a beeline for one of your pastors. Pastor Terry, Pastor Doug, Pastor Kevin, make a beeline and just let them know that. And you don't have to go into the whole story today. You don't have to tell every bit of it. Maybe you just need a code word, and the code word is this, I want to come home. Just look them in the eye and say, I I want to come home. And they would love to walk you through steps of understanding how much God really does treasure you and how you can find yourself back in a loving relationship with God. Second type of people I want to talk to today are those who say, well, Dan, you know, great, great message, good stories from Jesus, but I'm close to God. I'm there. We're walking together. I feel good about our relationship. There's nothing that I leave unresolved on a regular basis. 
you know, this, this is great. I, I love God. He loves me. We're good. And so I wanna, what I want to tell you is that God treasures lost people. And there are people in your life that you work with, that you go to school with, who are in your neighborhood, that are around the, the, uh, the city of Winnipeg, that are in your community. There are people who are lost. And as a Christ follower who loves God, you're called to represent Jesus, to present him again, to represent him to your community. God loves lost people. God treasures lost people. What do you treasure? Are you willing to give up some more of your time, your resources, your energy? Are you willing to go to school tomorrow and look someone in the eye and say, I need to tell you about this Jesus that I treasure and who treasures me? Are you willing to go to work and build a relationship with someone? Are you willing to sit in your community? Perhaps you need to look at yourself in a different light. As North American Baptists, what we're saying is that we're on a movement. And the movement is for every one of us to see ourselves as missionaries in our communities. That God has planted you right where you are in your community, the place that you live, so that you can show others that God treasures them. Maybe what you need to do if you're in that case is maybe you need to sign up for a free trip. And you need to say, God treasures people so much that I do need to give up my time, my resources, my effort. I need to go to Garden Hill this this summer because there are people there who don't realize that God treasures them, that God loves them, that God adores them. If that's you, boy, run to Kevin after the service. Say, I need to go. But if you simply want to see yourself as a missionary, maybe once again, as you're leaving, just just say something to Pastor Terry or, or Pastor Doug. Say, I just need to be a better missionary. I just need to be better at treasuring and loving the people around me. As the uh, worship team comes back up, as we close today, I just want to leave you with one last story. And that last story goes something like this. When my daughter Kelsey was about four or five years old, we had this bedtime ritual that we did. Rhonda and my wife would get her all ready for bed and get her in her jammies and tuck her in. And, uh, and then I would come into the room just before Kelsey was about ready to go to sleep and I would pray with her. And then I would lean down to her and our faces would be right next to each other, her face on my face. And I would say, Kelsey, Daddy loves you. And she would say, Daddy, I love you more. And I would say, Kelsey, I love you more and more. And she'd say, Daddy, I love you more and more and more and more and more. And I'd say, Kelsey, I love you more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And she'd say, Daddy, I love you more and 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 more. And I'd say, Kelsey, I love you more and 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 more. And friends, the Heavenly Father brings his face close to us today. 
no matter what distance you have from him. He says, I love you. I treasure you. I adore you more and more and more and more and more. So may God bless you. May God keep you. May you turn and journey back to him. And may you know that he loves you more and more.